0: Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program.
1: Walking through cobbles downtown, Benaz remembered with nostalgia the first time she flew over the dusty valley. She had noted few high rises and trees, Just a barren brown city with flat rectangular houses creeping up the craggy hillside, surrounded by the much higher jagged peaks of the Hindu Kush range. Gone was
0: that magical Kabul. This program features the work of 2011 writer Nasima Sefi. She spoke with curator Susan Rich about her work. Along with medicine, it seems that travel is another area perhaps of
1: inspiration for you. Can you talk about the importance of place in your work? When you travel, particularly in a foreign context and in a strange context from what you know, it takes you back to the basics of food and shelter and navigating where you are and safety and security. And I find thinking about the basic elements of life Is very powerful. And so I've used travel as a springboard for exploring a variety of intense experiences. How much does the new novel, Say I Am You, borrow from your own time working as a doctor in Afghanistan? It turns out that one does not need to invent a lot to write a novel about Afghanistan. Life can be so surreal and complex there that I found in the second novel, I hardly had to invent anything. And it is, in fact, quite autobiographical. The central
0: protagonist is based on my life and my experiences. Now we'll hear a selection from Nassim's live reading.
1: This is the first public reading I'm doing of my second novel, which Susan mentioned, is titled Say, I Am You. It's about the promises and perils of humanitarianism, how social capital rather than individual merit so often determines success. It's the story of two young women one, an Iranian named Benaz, and an Afghan named Zainab, and how they reconcile their unjust servings of privilege. Both of their families escape wars in their home countries through immigration, and they each have lives with far more opportunities in their adopted countries, which is the U.S. for Benaz, and... Iran for Zainab. The title of my novel is taken by a poem by Jalaluddin Rumi, who is beloved by both Iranians and Afghans. And this novel is dedicated to Afghanistan, a country I love very much, where I spent some of the best years of my life. And a place that I wish hefty doses of peace and prosperity, a place that I'm increasingly worried about. Prologue. Mubarak Safi looks around the internet cafe, his eyes adjusting from the brightness outdoors as he fights the urge to itch the skin caught beneath the layer of explosives taped around his abdomen. Instead, his hand rubs his smooth cheek. The sensation is alien to him as he's worn a beard since he could first grow facial hair. His unfamiliar face, reflected in the tinted windows of the cafe, reminds him that life will never be the same after today's mission. He wonders if it's too late to change his mind. There are a handful of men and three women in the cafe, including one infidel with a naked head. This casual mixing of the sexes makes his blood boil and propels him forward. Two of the women in the cafe look Afghan. Sleep deprivation from weeks of insomnia and the good and the emotional goodbye to his family this morning have conspired against his memory. He has forgotten the secret signal for identifying the one he is supposed to meet. Zainab laughs aloud from a joke sent to her by email from friends at an underground feminist magazine in Tehran, where she used to work. It's been too long since she's surrendered to humor, but deciding to embark on this high-risk embed has lifted her sadness and worry. There is nothing like a new story to energize her. She actually found herself humming on the walk to the internet cafe. The upside of facing crushing disappointment is that now she feels more alive than ever. Beynaz watches Mubarak and Zaineb's interaction, glancing up while reading the digital edition of the New York Times. She does not know their names yet, and she can only guess at the nature of their relationship, but something feels wrong. The personal security course she took prior to moving to Afghanistan as a medical humanitarian aid worker taught her to trust her sixth sense, so she contemplates leaving the cafe. But it wasn't easy to get here, and she's drawn to the scene unfolding before her. She convinces herself to stay until she can better diagnose the relationship between the two Afghans. The consequences of that decision will reverberate through the rest of her life. Chapter One Baynaz did not believe her life was in danger when she set off for the Charonette Café that Saturday, November the 11th. She'd been more annoyed than worried by the text message that arrived from her employer's security department three days ago. VBID, targeting foreign aid workers for the next three days. Lockdown till work on Sunday. Threats such as this vehicle-borne improvised implosive explosive device long-form for car bomb, had become part of her daily vocabulary in Kabul, and she had grown numb to them after two years of safety. While it was true that foreigners were increasingly victims of kidnappings, roadside shootings, and homemade bombs since Baynaz first moved to Afghanistan in 2004, she felt immune to these risks, given that her Iranian heritage and mastery of Dari allowed her to blend in with the locals. After finishing her revisions on the Afghan National Maternal Health Curriculum, there wasn't more work she could do from home without an internet connection. Sipping her third espresso by late Saturday morning, Benaz wrote her Selected Disasters and Complex Emergencies blog entry that she intended to publish as soon as she could get online. She had named the blog after a section of the popular Relief Web Internet site that international aid workers consulted for job opportunities and country reports. As she finished the blog, a text message arrived from her friend Sheila, a reporter for the New York Times, with news that the VBID threat had been averted, truck carrying suspicious quantities of ammonium nitrate intercepted by police at checkpoint in Kabul. In a celebratory mood, she decided to share the good news with her guards. She walked downstairs from her bedroom to the kitchen and made two mochas using her professional-grade Italian espresso machine. As accompaniment to the drink, she, played, she placed almond anise biscotti on her finest china and delivered the treats on an engraved silver platter. Crossing the garden along the stone path from her front door, Baynaz walked beside pomegranate and quince trees, a grape arbor and persimmon-colored roses still in bloom until she reached her guard's shack. I bet every international NGO has canceled lockdown except for ours, lamented Baynaz, after telling them Sheila's news about the interception of the truck bombers. They sat against rectangular garnet, colored floor cushions in her guard's small living space, a drab room with a beat-up black and white television, a couple of gas burners, and some bedding rolled up in the corner. I'm going stir-crazy, being stuck indoors. Why not take a walk in the neighborhood, Dr. Saheb, suggested her guard Sarfaraz. No one will see you as a foreigner. One of us can accompany you. After three days of feeling imprisoned under lockdown, the last thing she wanted to do was walk outside with a warden. I appreciate the gesture, Sarfars, John, but don't worry about it. I feel safe on my own, and your blessings are protection enough. The stony, dusty alley outside of Baynaz's home was littered with stray pink plastic bags and squashed blue water bottles. Baynaz was frustrated by the short-term mindset that often accompanied lives of poverty and war, but today she did not pick up the trash, for she needed to blend in. On the main thoroughfare of Taimani Street, it took concerted effort for her to avert her curious eyes from onlookers, but she succeeded in impersonating the demure, unhurried gait of an Afghan woman. Her short black curls occasionally popped out from under her headscarf But after two years of covering her hair in public, she tucked them back under her pashmina as if second nature. Walking along the open sewers, less putrid now than in summertime, Benaz would have whistled if it were culturally appropriate. She was so happy to be outside the suffocating walls of her home. She wove around rusty bicycles, pushcarts brimming with produce, and even a pack of sheep with fatty, pink-dyed tails, led by a shepherd with a long white beard who looked like he belonged to biblical times. After passing a beauty salon, windows covered in dark purple velvet curtains, she stopped to buy a phone card from a man selling them on the street corner and took an extra moment to enter the code, refilling her credit into the phone's keypad. Taking advantage of her standstill, a group of children darted across the street to sell her their newspapers and magazines. Baynaz couldn't resist the gang's ringleader, a ten-year-old girl in a raggedy pink Punjabi tunic and matching pants with a crusty Leishmaniasis infection on her nose. (laughs) "'Sister, please buy one,' said the little girl, tugging at her sleeve and showing Beinaz the latest copy of the English-language Lapis Lazuli magazine." along with a Time magazine from 2005, a tattered copy of Nancy Dupre's Historical Guide to Afghanistan and Soviet-era Maps of the City. The girls' gang of mud-cake boys with bright eyes, matted hair, and runny noses encircled Benaz. One offered to ward off the evil eye by covering her in his rotten-smelling wild roof smoke. Another proposed a shine, and a third tried to sell her matches. Benaz handed the girl 200 Afghanis, about $4 for lapis lazuli, the Afghan equivalent of Time Out magazine, and an extra 50 AFS to each one of the boys. The girl's face lit up with smiles upon receiving the full price, plus tips. Baynaz knew the magazine gave these street children free copies to sell, but she wasn't about to bargain with them on the price. She walked on, ignoring the nonchalant money changers who flipped through thick wads of cash as if monopoly money. She stopped for a moment to stare at the haunting sight of a woman in a dirty burqa, dodging cars in the middle of the road. The woman's shield was a swaddled baby, with black coal raccoon eyes stenciled on his tiny face, while her ghostly, outstretched hand begged for cash. Baynaz could hear the words of her cynical expat friends in her head. We're not the only ones who use poverty porn to fundraise. Passed by white and gray SUVs tattooed with acronyms and pierced by thick radio antennae, Beynas saw foreigners being driven around in their fancy chariots, including a UNAMA vehicle, the catchy abbreviation for the United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan. The fact that usually security conservative UN had lifted lockdown corroborated Baynaz's assessment about the safety of venturing outside. Walking through cobbles downtown, Baynaz remembered with nostalgia the first time she flew over the dusty valley. She had noted few high rises and trees just a barren brown city with flat rectangular houses creeping up the craggy hillside, surrounded by the much higher jagged peaks of the Hindu Kush range. Gone was that magical Kabul, that theater of heaven and light garden of the angel king described by the Indian mogul, Babur, whose death wish was to be buried there. Today's Kabul, like its population, was war-ravaged assaulting Baynaz's lungs with its toxic mixture of feces-laden dust, car exhaust fumes, and burning diesel. She passed the cinema where decent women never ventured, showing yet another South Asian action flick, the peacock vendors whose birds could lend an air of royalty to cobbly gardens of the rich and the kebab stands. Walking along the Sharanao Park, she turned the corner and entered the Internet Café. The Sharonet Café was attached to a hotel owned by one of the local strongmen or warlords in the Ministry of Tribal Affairs. The private armed guards of the warlord were more loyal to their leader than the low-paid, unreliable Afghan National Police. And though they were practically immune from the law, they had little tolerance for suspicious activity in their vicinity. Fainos figured it would be very difficult for a terrorist to slip by them in the unlikely case that another attack was in the works.
0: Thank you so much. Sound Pages was produced by Jack Straw Productions as part of the Jack Straw Writers Program. The 2011 curator of this program is Susan Rich. Music performed by Sravani Jade and recorded as part of the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. Producer is Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are Mo Preventure and CJ Lazenby. Narrator is Alyssa Keene. And Executive Director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, Washington State Arts Commission, National Endowment for the Arts, the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.